Today on State Scoop's Priorities Podcast from Scoop News Group, the missing piece to state and local cyber defenses. I think we have a lot of mechanisms in order to share. We have not as many mechanisms as we need to collaborate. Welcome to State Scoop's Priorities Podcast. Every Thursday, you'll get insights into the state and local government technology community. You'll hear from top leaders across the state and local world, as well as the latest news and trends ahead for the industry. I'm your host, Jake Williams. Here's what's happening this week. President Biden says county officials should use funds from the American Rescue Plan to lay groundwork for projects that could be pursued under future rounds of funding from the infrastructure bill. Biden made the remarks at the National Association of Counties winter meeting in Washington. The president says his administration is prioritizing direct distribution of the relief funding to local governments, as opposed to only funneling the money through state legislatures. County CIOs say they are trying to be realistic about the funds coming from the relief packages. Cook County, Illinois CIO Tom Lynch says his team is in the planning phase for how it will use the $1 billion it received from the American Rescue Plan. Other CIOs are committing to using the money to phase out legacy systems. Former Virginia CIO Nelson Moe's right-hand man is headed right out the door this month. Jonathan Ozevec has been the COO of Virginia's IT agency for three years. Ozevec says he joined government to help the agency generate cost savings. Those savings enable the state to begin embracing emerging technologies like robotic process automation long-term. A reporter for the St. Louis Post-Dispatch who reported a website vulnerability to the Missouri state government will not face any criminal charges. Governor Mike Parson accused the reporter of, quote, hacking, unquote, the state government. The reporter discovered personal information, including social security numbers, in the source code on the Missouri Department of Elementary and Secondary Education's website. State Tube's technology editor Benjamin Freed has been tracking the story since last fall and is here with us. Ben, welcome. What's the latest news here from the prosecutor's announcement? Hey, Jake. So, yes, it appears that uh, the pros- that uh, the prosecutor in Cole County, Missouri, uh, I believe that's where the, the state capital, uh, Jefferson City, is, uh, he had been overseeing the investigation that Governor Mike Parson uh, had demanded. Um, he reached the conclusion uh, last Friday that uh, it was not in the best interest of taxpayers to pursue uh, criminal charges. And, you know, that's, uh, uh, that was surely a relief to the post, the St. Louis Post-Dispatch and its reporter, Josh Renaud. Uh, but, you know, th- this has still been a uh, quite an ordeal for, for the, for Renaud and, and the paper. And it's been a, a you know, pretty, uh, Pretty grim episode for uh, both press freedoms and um, and and security researchers. You reported that at one point, you know, the the department that that Renaud found the vulnerability and uh, planned to thank the newspaper for notifying them, but then the governor's office went on the offensive, accusing the reporter of hacking. Uh, is there any merit at all to what the governor said? Is there any uh, any sort of detail that we might be missing here? Uh, short version, not really. Um, and uh, you know the way the way this all played out is that um, that this reporter Josh Renaud, he was uh, looking into. I think you know he had some kind of tip that uh, this this website, which was a directory for uh, public school employees uh, in the state was exposing uh, teachers, other, other people's personal identifying information uh, in its source code. And he checked uh, the HTML, which is something that's available to pretty much anybody using a standard issue web browser, Chrome, Safari, take your pick. They can all show 
uh, any user uh, website's uh, HTML code. Uh, he saw the, the he saw this flaw. Uh, he confirmed the finding with a computer science professor, and then he reported it to uh, the Missouri Education Agency. And all of these steps, uh, uh, as we reported at the time, are were in in uh, you know in line with with standards uh, for reporting website vulnerabilities that have been developed over the years by. Uh, by by uh, by software developers, by by security experts, and are internationally recognized. You know, there's the thing is once you, you know, when the governor went after the newspaper publicly, one one thing that something like that is going to do is invite a lot more scrutiny. Um, and in addition to our reporting, the Post Dispatch, of course, kept reporting on this. Uh, they the Post Dispatch at one point did find that. Uh, before the governor's office stepped in, that the education agency did plan to thank the paper for finding this vulnerability. Uh, you know, we uh, at State Scoop, we uh, we did our own public records request. We found that uh, the governor's office was pretty involved in statements that were written for the uh, CIO for the state CIO Jeff Wan. Um, and I think you know there's been some other reporting uh, done over the months, including by Bloomberg News, that that really showed um, how for Governor Parson this really was uh, he he really saw this as uh, you know it, for it did seem to just be a political opportunity to attack the media. Yeah, and I mean I think when you talk about the um, the impact that that the governor's statements had in this case, I mean. Uh, in his in his statement after the prosecutor's announcement, Renaud talks about how the threats from the governor will will likely have a, a chilling effect on cyber reporting in the state. Uh, what does what does this mean for the public disclosure of vulnerabilities like this in, in a place like Missouri, but but really you know at, at a wider scale across the country? You know, I can't imagine that if you operate any website, you, you're happy to hear if that you're uh, exposing users or, or citizens' personal identifying information. Uh, but, you know, there are the, these standards, these standards for vulnerability reporting do exist for a reason. And, um, you know, certainly uh, at the, at the in the corporate level, in the corporate world, uh, there are uh, organizations with uh, coordinated vulnerability disclosure policies. Those don't really exist so much at the state level. Um, but, the fact is, yes, this, this, uh, you know, uh, you know, a lot, it, it's, these are, you know, these are concepts that, that aren't always easy to digest uh, for the public at large. So when a governor goes out and says, uh, hey, this reporter hacked our state government website, uh, that can send the message that uh, if you are trying to do good faith research that could uh, actually, uh, result in, uh, you know, uh, security and privacy being improved, uh, that could, uh, you may be dissuaded from doing that. Um, and, uh, that's, that's what I think, uh, Renaud was saying in, in his statement. Um, you know, as his, his, you know, as he, he wrote, this was political persecution of a journalist, plain and simple. Uh, and he went on to say that, uh, the quote, uh, despite the sign proud that my reporting exposed a critical issue and that it caused the state to take steps to better safeguard teachers' private data, which is what happened at the education department in the end. But, um, you know, this, this uh, whole episode still played out in public. Um, 
and uh, you know, it, it's. Uh, I think it, it has uh, certainly sent a message uh, to uh, at least um, at least uh, about reporting vulnerabilities in Missouri. I guess the last question here, I mean, you talked about how private sector companies sort of have a, a process for this, right? A way to report these vulnerabilities. So most do at least. Um, is this something, you know, at the government level that's that's hyper confined to Missouri, this sort of strict uh, fear that now exists? Or is, is this sort of process to, to uh, report these vulnerabilities? Is this something that many states and cities and localities are working proactively to, uh, to enable that to happen? Well, this, in, in terms of, uh, in terms of um, you know clearly drawn vulnerability disclosure policies, they don't really exist. Not they don't uh, they they don't exist uh, really at the state and local levels. Uh, there are a couple of Secretary of State's offices uh, that have created these kinds of policies for election related websites, uh, but. You know, we've seen other instances of state officials not taking kindly to uh, showing up in a vulnerability disclosure. Uh, you know, last summer, uh, there uh, last summer, uh, a company called UpGuard, which uh, research, which does vulnerability testing, um, they found some flaws in a Microsoft application that uh, was used by, among other clients the Indiana uh, Department the Indiana Department of Health. And the officials in Indiana, uh, while they certainly did not go as far as uh, Governor Parson in Missouri did, they their first reaction was um, you know, let's say uh, less less the, less than friendly and thankful. Um, you know, there were um, there was a bit of a, a public spat between uh, Indiana officials and an upguard, uh, you know, I think it has, you know, been smoothed over, uh, and, uh, you know, it certainly did not go as far as, um, as anything, uh, that happened in Missouri. Uh, but, you know, there's, I, I like I said, I, I think nobody, nobody wants to hear that they're running a website, uh, that is leaking sensitive data and, um, you know, I think this 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 does, uh, you know, maybe uh, this this incident in Missouri it maybe does, uh, you know, shine shine a light into why these disclosure policies, uh, uh, when they're formalized, can can be helpful. And I know I said the previous one was the last question, but one more question: uh, Is this saga truly over in Missouri, or is there a chance that the governor uh, asks that this gets continued? Well, the governor uh, has not said anything uh, since the prosecutor uh, made his announcement. So maybe this is the last we hear of it, but certainly, um, you know, cer cer certainly uh, anything is possible. Uh, I think no, no, nobody would have, I think few people before last October would have thought that, uh, you know, performing a simple web browser function that's in everybody's uh, men. That's in everybody's drop-down menu would be construed as hacking. But here we are. State Scoop's tech editor Benjamin Freed. You can read the latest on cybersecurity in Missouri at statescoop.com. You can also find links in today's show notes. 
Former New York City CISO Jeff Brown, the first head of NYC Cyber Command, is looking back at his six years in government. Brown is now vice president of global intelligence platforms at cyber firm Recorded Future. Statescoops Benjamin Freed asked Brown what his most significant achievements were on the job. Incredibly important question because that organization and serving New Yorkers uh, is incredibly dear to me. Um, you know, I am thankful and grateful for the opportunity I had for you know nearly six years, not quite, but nearly six years to serve a city I love and the people in that city uh, through some of the most challenging times that the city has seen. Um, so I think the thing that I am the most proud of is the people, first and foremost. Mm -hmm. there, were, there were people in the mission, and then we built you know, more people joining the mission. So one, the people. Like, that's what I'm most proud of, the people that were there um, and the people that came to the mission, the people that are there right now each and every day sort of defending the greatest city in the world. So mm -hmm. uh, that's without a doubt the thing I'm the most proud of. Um, but I think if you give me some time, Ben, I'd love to walk you through some of the elements that I think are really important to that mission. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. If, if, especially if there are any certain projects or, or, yep. uh, or, or, or milestones that you had. Yeah, certainly. So the first, I would say, project was really... Uh, creating a place that the mission would be served from. And to do that, we had to align on you know, a, a vision and value set. So you know, the vision we aligned on was for New, for New York City to be cyber resilient. And the way we approached that was by designing an equation of how we would do our work. And that, you know, as people know, uh, became uh, what's referred to as our value statement, our equation, NYC Cyber Command, which was facts plus judgment plus culture equals trust. And what that organization, well, when I was a part of it and what it will continually try to do is earn the trust of the agencies that it serves and the trust of New Yorkers in how it goes about its mission. So I think that's really important. I'm really proud uh, of, of having fingerprints along with some other great people on setting that course of action. I'd say the second thing that I'm exceptionally proud of is, you know, that we had to organize accordingly for that mission. So working in the de Blasio administration with the, uh, you know, the mayor and his team had the foresight to create an entity that consolidated the cybersecurity mission for all of the agencies. Uh, and that was technical, it was strategic, it had a governance model when the mayor signed in his administration, Executive Order 28. Um, it really created that center of gravity, which was incredibly important for what we accomplished from there. And it was followed up, as you know, with the um, city council releasing a charter to instantiate in city in the laws of the city uh, that cybersecurity uh, had a way of being governed. And I think that was really important. I'm very proud of that. And I think it was a model for other government entities on how they might approach uh, their mission. So proud of that. Um, <clears throat> further from there, you know, what I think is really incre incredibly important is what we did in order to accomplish what we accomplished. And, you know, the way we thought about it was creating greater visibility. So going from what was seen to what now uh, that team operates, a huge umbrella of technical telemetry whereby they could see suspicious behavior and react to it. Uh, that was, you know, multiple, multiple, multiple times more visibility and actionability than it had when it first began. 
Um, and, and finally, I think another element that I'm really personally proud of is that Mayor de Blasio made um, the decision, because everything's a decision, he made the decision to bring cybersecurity to New Yorkers themselves in a really unique way. And that was the NYCC Care uh, Initiative. You know, Which, I remember that meeting with Mayor de Blasio. It was very simple. Um, you know, we put to him that in the physical space, so much the city does in service of New Yorkers, and we need to do similarly, accomplish similarly, strive to do similarly in the digital space. And you know, he recognized that immediately, and then launched, you know, our effort to bring you know the NYC Secure app um, and to put free um, free uh, DNS security over everywhere that the city provides free public Wi-Fi. I'm glad so, you brought. I'm glad. I'm glad you brought up the app. Uh, I remember covering that, and I know it's been uh, replicated in a few other places around the country as recently as yeah. uh, I think December. The Los Angeles Metro uh, launched. Uh, an app of their own. Um, have you been able to, were you able, while you were with the city, were you able to tell how widely it was being adopted, how widely, you know, whether it was making an impact on, you know, a city of 9 million people, wherever, but, you know, almost all of whom were walking around with their heads hunched over their phones? Uh, so that's actually an incredibly important and precise questions um, that goes to the tenets of that program. Um, the decision was made when it was built that uh, it in no way, shape, or form would invade the privacy of a New Yorker. So we want to respect New Yorkers' values. So because of that, especially with the app, the only activity that occurs occurs on the device. So it might warn a New Yorker um, to stay away from a threat that it detects, but it doesn't take any action, and it wouldn't send any of the data off that device. So the only data we had, but that was by design in respect to New Yorkers, uh, the or uh, organization had the data of how many downloads, and that was pretty much the only way we could track it. And then, you know, I, I and I think it, it's it was at least, you know, in the hundreds of thousands of downloads when I left. Yeah. So. I also, before we when I actually do want to ask, because you did talk about, you know, about a lot of challenges that you faced over the years. Um, the last two years were obviously much different from the first four years. What was the, what, you know, what, what was the, the biggest uh, impact the pandemic had on the way uh, Cyber Command worked? So there's two pieces there. One, as an organization, Cyber Command, like any organization in New York City or any organization in the world that reacted to the pandemic had to take care of its people. Mm. You know, we needed to take care of our people and also in following Mayor de Blasio and his team's guidance, you know, do so in the way that was in keeping with the guidance that we received from, you know, our health officials. So the impact of the mission was that immediately we went remote. And that was an exceptionally proud moment for me as the leader, because we had designed a strategy whereby we could pick up laptops and go home. So that kept uh, the people carrying out the mission, but as well, their families and their communities a little bit safer in those uncertain days. But from there, you know, it changed because so did the rest of the city, of course. Um, and so I would say our strategy 
was sound and effective wherever sort of the city needed to conduct compute and proved exceptionally effective because of the type of adversary activity that the pandemic created. Uh, for instance, you know, a major campaign by ransomware actors against, as Department of Homeland Security, Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency warned everyone along with the FBI in the fall of 2020, you know, a major campaign uh, to try and disrupt those critical services. So I would say our vigilance to protect those services that were uh, absolutely critical in those moments of time, um, our vigilance, like, our vigilance never changed, but our heightened attention, our tuning uh, to the threat landscape changed because the threat landscape decided to target those things New Yorkers relied on so much. Um, so I think that's my, uh, that's how I, I reflect on it. The uh, a change of the pandemic meant uh, an incredible amount of, it, of additional care to the defenders that was organizationally. And the change to the pandemic meant the threat landscape changed too. So we had to do so uh, in keeping with our technical controls and in keeping with our intelligence-driven operations. Yeah. So um, there's a new mayor now. Uh, he's uh, you know, kind of had, had setting his own agenda on, on all things tech. Um, what would, you know, what, what would you say that the, the new mayor, the new, uh, new people in charge of the city's IT and cybersecurity uh, need to uh, keep their, keep their uh, focus on? The mission. You know, that's the most incredible thing is that um, the mission itself and the people who conduct the mission are absolutely terrific. And I think, you know, I would shout that from the tops of the mountains, so to speak or I guess in New York City, the tops of the skyscrapers, you know, those individuals who each and every day, you know, quietly, professionally serve the defense of the city as the threat landscape continues to change are absolutely terrific public servants. So keeping their eye on what those individuals tell them they need each and every day, I think is the right thing to do. Okay, great. Um, so you're with Recorded Future. You're, you're with Recorded Future now. Uh, I know just this is just based on something uh, Chris Alberg wrote. Uh, I think on link on uh, you know I think wrote in a in a LinkedIn statement or whatever or or something like that. Uh, you are you're you're working on building out their their uh, global intelligence platform. Uh, what's what's what what goes into that? And what's tell me and what's a bit more about your uh, your new role? Sure. So, yeah, I'm really proud that I joined Recorded Future because, you know, at it, a data-driven company that turns data actively into intelligence that can fuel tac tactical operations, strategic decisions, um, I think is absolutely incredible, incredible sort of company and incredible mission to now be part of. And really, to me, it all goes to sort of intelligence and intelligence I've seen in my career uh, drive sort of the tactical, technical things that need to be done to def defend an organization, but also strategically drives the decisions that allow organizations to be more resilient. And the mission that I'm on now on behalf of the company, but really on behalf of the community, is to think globally, to interact globally. And, and in some senses, I think 
what Recorded Future offers is a common intelligence framework and platform because, you know, the more that there is commonality across different users, I think that then creates, you know, an ability to have at speed shared conversations. And that may, in fact, create um, a higher degree of effective operational collaboration moving forward. And so I'm really excited to be able to go globally after uh, serving the greatest city in the world, but then uh, sort of going globally and speaking to other stakeholders uh, who are, you know, also contesting with this incredibly active threat landscape. And I have a deep belief that intelligence can drive uh, better active defenses and better strategic decisions so we can all like be a bit more resilient in our digital lives. Yeah. Since so much of this work is about intelligence gathering and, you know, and, and that, and, and analyzing all that information, you know, whether it's cities or national governments or large, large corporations or, or really any organization, are there things that, you know, organizations that are trying to improve their cybersecurity should be doing that maybe we have not talked about enough? That's a great question. I think there's an incredible amount of guidance on all of the sort of technical, tactical things that are best practices. And there's standards bodies, um, there's terrific information out there on best practices. But that's not your question. Your question is more you know, from my vantage point, you know, the experiences, the successes, the failures of the past, what do I think can be done? I think we have a lot of mechanisms in order to share. We have not as many mechanisms as we need to collaborate. And collaboration is necessary because what we do all share is the digital realm. We all exist in a connected digital realm. So in order to defend those things in that digital realm that you know, we can't afford to be held at risk. We need to collaborate more, collaborate better, collaborate more effectively, have the frameworks to collaborate more effectively across borders. And then we win. Yeah. So I know in addition to Recorded Future, you're also, uh, you've, you've also got an, uh, a new uh, teaching role at Middlebury, uh, your, your alma mater. What are, what are uh, you know, what, what drew you back there and what are, what are you going to be teaching? Sure. So I am really excited to be affiliated once again with my alma mater, but in a very different capacity. So um, the program that I'm part of is the Non-Proliferation and Terrorism Studies Department at the Middlebury Institute of International Studies in Monterey, California. And the reason why I got drawn to it is because I think these problem sets are interconnected. So the coursework that I'm engaged in with the great students there and the faculty is you know, intelligence and cybersecurity. So those two topic areas, but within the framework of, a, you know, a globally recognized department that, you know, thinks about adjacent and equally critical security and intelligence quandaries like, you know, non-proliferation and terrorism studies. Um, so I, I, I think that only by looking through a lens that is comprehensive uh, can we be if impactful on a mission towards resiliency? Um, 
certainly in the discipline of cybersecurity, uh, there, there is a great need to have, you know, focused capability. But with that said, I think the discipline of cybersecurity is better affected, better informed by being sort of a, um, a partner with the other types of risks that the threat environment puts on our table. Because uh, then we can really think truly from an enterprise risk perspective, no matter where you sit in a government or an organization, uh, these things you know, need to be brought together if you're gonna take an actual look at where you have risk and what you need to do to be more resilient, what decisions need to be made. So that's why I'm kind of excited to be part of a department that has, has people thinking about the problem from exceptionally different angles. Jeff Brown, the former CISO for New York City and the first head of New York City Cyber Command. You can read more about cybersecurity in New York City on statescoop.com, and you can subscribe to the show at prioritiespodcast.com and wherever you get your podcasts. This show is a product of Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. Emily Bamforth, Benjamin Freed, Ryan Johnston, James Mahoney, and Colin Wood helped put this show together, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. Until next week, I'm your host, Jake Williams. Thanks for listening.